I love the stories of Jesus, and we're going to talk a lot about the stories of Jesus as we look at the names of Jesus. And of course, in my classes, we look through just Jesus stories. I'm, I'm fudging it a bit this week and next when I talk about Jesus, the God that respects women, because it's not really a title that he's given, but it could be. We'll look at how countercultural this is a little bit more next week, and then especially on March the 5th, when we hit a, the, uh, the view of Jesus as the bridegroom, which is one of his titles. Today, we're going to lay some of the foundation for this. There's a very little mentioned story in the second chapter of Luke, and I think it's important for us to give our attention to it in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who is righteous and devout, He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. To the the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, if you're wondering what about that passage is important, you don't really know the first century very well. During this time in history, women were not included. Women were shoved to the side at best and misused and thrown away at worst. And yet here, the baby Jesus is not just presented to the prophet Simeon, but also the prophet Anna. And not just Simeon speaks to the people in the temple and serves in the temple, but Anna does too and had been there a long time serving and speaking to the people. This is such a break with history. I am no classicist. I cannot pretend to know all ancient literature. What I can tell you is that I read extensively and I cannot find any other document in the ancient world which elevates women like the scripture does. I can't. Now, I can find documents that elevate women in the sense that they tell tales about them being goddesses and then dumps them in. But scripture brings them up at the same level to the point where Paul will say, there's no longer Jew or Greek or male or female. We're all one in Christ. We don't realize the weight of that because we live when we live, and we live where we live. We don't understand. There's a 
cable channel, which is emphatically not Christian. It is very libertarian in its viewpoint of history and the like, and there are many things on there that would offend you. But they also have some amazing documentaries. It's called the Vice Land Channel. I don't know why they call it that. But they do some amazing documentaries that I, I really enjoy, and one of them just broke my heart. It was a woman that had gone to Bangladesh, where she is from, to ask about how do we stop the gang raping of women by men. And as she approached one leader of the Muslim faith after another, they would look at her and say, if women would just stay home where they belong, cover up, and stay with the men of their house, there'd be no problem. But if they go outside, it's their fault. And I'm thinking, Jesus needs to get there. Jesus and God need to be there. Muslims are not alone. Many religions and societies, many Christian ones, have put women in second place or no place. Some see them as threats or want to keep them under subjection. In the last couple of months, the nation of Turkey, you cannot publish a book in Turkey without the nation giving you permission. The nation of Turkey produced a marriage manual, of course, based more on Islam and such and their traditions, that has a whole chapter on how to beat your wife. Other chapters on how to keep her quiet under subjection and what rules she is to have. And another chapter encouraging polygamy, saying it encourages healthy competition among your wives to live right. Now read scripture. This is one of those reasons why, as much as I love and I want to be open-minded to everything, I have a real trouble when people say, you know, we're all worshiping the same God. I'm going, ah, this seems to look a lot different. Let me tell you about our God. There are certainly many sad, depressing, broken examples in the Old Testament of the mistreatment of women, but a careful reading will show that this was not God's intent, that in fact, when Eve was created, she was not created until Adam realized nothing in the world really was sufficient for him. He needed help. And so when God created Eve, he said he created her as a helper fit for him. And many women, not understanding the Semitic uses of these words, think that that is a subordinate role, a, role, a servant role of some sort. No. The word helper, which God gives to Eve in that chapter, is reserved for God the rest of the Old Testament. He is our helper. I look to the hills from whence comes my help. He gave her his name, his job. And I've often said, and I did a marriage retreat this weekend over in Gatlinburg, and I told them that the fact is very plain that we need women more than women need us. And we know that. We're very aware of that. This is why when a woman is widowed, she very often will say that she has no interest in marrying again, doesn't want to train another one. <laughs> and yet when men are widowed, they immediately they sit around the house going, I need help. And we do. God started the whole picture of man and woman by putting woman in an elevated place. So perhaps we should use stories to to take a look and see what God is like. 
for God honors women, even those, especially those, that the world does not honor. You see them all the time, or perhaps you don't. That's kind of the point. Girls tend to go out in teams and squads. They do things in groups. It's almost like a military maneuver. You can be at dinner with a bunch of them and do you want to go to the restroom? Well, we all need to go in a pack, and you, and you, and you form the pack. Men don't do that. You know, I, I never say, I need to go to the restroom. Mark, you want? No, we don't do that. <laughs> but women move in groups, and sometimes they go out in groups, and you can tell if you, I'm an observer of human nature. I have a license. I'm allowed to do it. It's, you see that very often beautiful women won't travel with beautiful women but they find some others that are slightly less and then a couple that are not beautiful at all because it elevates their status in the group. They bring the group to the dance. The less lovely don't get to dance very much. They're pushed to the back. Nobody really sees them. And if anybody really talks to them, they know it's because they're trying to get closer to the pretty ones. Or they know that Bets have been made, favors been called in, coins have been flipped, and you're the one they got. They're the left behind. They're the less than pretty ones. Have you ever given them much thought? There aren't magazines for them. Watching TV can be very painful for them because they don't see anybody that looks like them except for comic sidekicks and comedians. They're not what society says lovely is. There's a woman like that in Scripture named Leah. We often lose her in the rush to tell Jacob's story, but don't do that. That's a mistreatment of Scripture. She's in Scripture for a reason. Leah even had a terrible name. Her name meant weary or dull it was also a word used for cow. Once you think about that, here's a little girl given the name weary or dull or unlovely. That's Leah's life. We struggle to describe her. Most versions in English will call her weak-eyed. And what it means, flatly, is that Leah was not pretty. Her eyes were dull and flat. In a society where women's eyes were the most important thing about their beauty that would be noticed by people, the very, her very name indicated Leah was not worth a second look. I want your heart to break for Leah. It needs to break for Leah. I want you to see Leah. Even today, when so much skin is on display, eyes are hugely important. It's not just how pretty the eyes are, it's how does that person look at you? That matters. It's huge. There are commentaries that work with this phrase, this weak-eyed phrase. It's an odd phrase. And they wonder if her eyes were just unlovely or if her eyes indicated she was not very intelligent or the other extreme, that her eyes indicated she was too intelligent for most men to want to be around. You see, we often don't prize intelligence either. 
we elevate something else. Because many men don't really want you to look at them with intelligence. They want you to look at them with selective blindness. They don't want truth. They want flattery. That's why men will look in a mirror, and no matter what shape they're in, really believe they're only 10 sit-ups away from a date with a supermodel. <laughs> they're not looking for truth. Jacob worked for Leah's father for seven years so that he could marry Leah's younger, prettier sister, Rachel. Leah didn't figure into his plans. In fact, Leah didn't figure into anybody's plans. By the way, Jacob was a bad guy much of his life, but let's give him one thing. He loved Rachel. And it's the only marriage in Scripture where some, the Scripture says that somebody loved their wife or their husband. I find that fascinating. I'm not sure what to make of all of it. But he loved Rachel. So that was true love. That's fine. It seemed that that love could wait for seven years before they could come together. Leah had nothing. She had nothing to look forward to. At the end of seven years, the wages would all be given at once. Seven years' wages given to you at once along with Rachel the one you loved. But Laban is not an honest man. The father of Rachel and Leah, not an honest man. He's not a good man. And he did not intend to let Jacob have Rachel until he found a way to get rid of Leah, his daughter that he didn't like, who wasn't pretty, wasn't marketable. There is no sign in scripture that Laban loved or cared for Leah in any sense of the term. The male-dominated society went into gear. Laban arranged the feast, the wedding feast, invited the guest. And in his society, women didn't come to the wedding. It was men. And they'd be in the tent, and they would sometimes go for days, drinking and feasting, dancing. Yes, man with man, because it was just, just the culture there. Women were not part of it. Finally, when the time comes, Jacob, probably well into his cups, as we'd say in Breton, would be taken to another tent where his bride would be brought in in the dark. They'd be left alone. Leah was sent in, completely veiled. No, no doubt, under strict orders, you do not speak. You do not give yourself away. In the morning... Jacob realized somebody had pulled a switch on him, but I don't really want to look at Jacob right now. His story's told all the time. I want us to look at Leah's face in the next morning. She knows how she's been misused. She knows that she has been thrown into this to get rid of her. And she sees on Jacob's face in the morning the disappointment. Can you hurt for Leah for a while? I think we need to hurt for her. Rejected by her father, unvalued by her, her father and family, rejected by Jacob, poor broken-hearted Leah. Now, many of you have been told that Jacob went to Laban and, uh, you know, he said, hey, we got this rule that you can't marry the younger before you marry the older. That's probably not true. We don't find any record of that. There was a rule, however, that brother, uh, a man could not marry sisters. 
Laban had no problem throwing that rule away. He said, you work another seven years and you can get Rachel. And we get the wrong idea sometimes. We think uh, Jacob worked another seven years and then got Rachel. No, he had to agree to work seven years. But only one week later, he was given Rachel. Leah didn't get to be with Jacob, get to prove herself as a wife for seven years. She had a week. And most of that would have been spent in planning the other wedding, the wedding Jacob wanted. In this time, Leah was taken in by God. There was a, a, in that society, the way you could tell that God loved you if you're a woman was that he gave you many children and God opened Leah's womb and she had the children. Rachel would eventually get children, but not nearly as many. Leah was the one that God called to the dance. But even in the names Leah gives her children, we see and we sense her isolation. Reuben, which means see a son. In other words, I'm valuable. I've given you a son. Simeon, please hear me. Levi, I'm attached. In other words, I want you to be attached to me. Look at what you're getting, these sons. Judah, that one seems to have given up on Jacob because it means to praise God. She's not even asking for his praise anymore. This is an ugly story, full of the humiliations and terrors of polygamy. But it shows us also that God has a special affection for the lowly and the despised when they look to him for comfort. It tells us something about God. It shows human beings in a very bad light, but it shows God in a very sweet light. Leah took hope in her relationship with God, even when earthly men rejected her. In fact, Leah in her life shows far more signs of faith than her prettier sister, Rachel. To the point where in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 11, I've never heard anybody preach a sermon on Ruth 4.11. Whenever they, Boaz is finally arranging the marriage with Ruth, they proclaim it was Leah and Rachel that established Israel. Leah's name is put forward as the one who brings Israel to be. God chose Leah when man did not. I don't know your situation, but you need to know something. We serve a God that looked across the dance floor, saw Leah, and walked across to her and took her. That's the God we serve. Not a God that would allow or appreciate violence against women or mistreatment of them in any sense of the term. Is this a story in isolation? Oh, no. There are so many others, but we'll pick one because we have limited amount of time. Hagar, a woman named Hagar. She was another woman who had no say, zero say in what happened to her or who used her. She was a servant to Sarah, Abraham's wife. But before that, she had been a slave and a servant in Egypt, and she was not Egyptian for her name. We don't know her name. She is called Hagar. But Hagar merely means emigrant, refugee, stranger. 
We don't know what name she was born with, what name her parents gave her. We just know she was the slave given to Abraham. Sarah, when she couldn't have children, decided to form a committee and make sure that God got the kid he wanted. And she said, well, you can raise up children to me through Hagar. Hagar didn't have a choice there, it doesn't seem. But that was the world at the time. It seems that Hagar, and I don't want you to to paint any of these people like cartoons. Nobody is fully wonderful, and nobody is fully evil. Hagar, when she got pregnant, it seems that she did begin to act superior to Sarah. And she did begin to mistreat Sarah. Sarah got angry, told Abraham, throw her out. Do you understand what that means? That's a death sentence. A woman on her own in that world? There are no protective laws. There are no protective borders. There are no constitutions, bill of rights. A woman on her own, it's a death sentence. And Abraham, like a coward, says, hey, I've got nothing to do with this. You'll just have to leave. She didn't have Abraham to protect her. Her son hadn't been born yet, so he couldn't protect her. She hadn't asked to be here, driven into the desert to die or to be taken as a slave by any passing caravan. But then Jesus came to her. Almighty God, the angel of the Lord, walked across the dance floor and chose Hagar. And he said, where are you going? And the echo of the words that he said to Adam and Eve, where are you? What's your situation? She's told to go back and change her behavior. She's told to go back and live at peace in that family that God will take care of her. In other words, change your your way of life. Being thrown away and mistreated isn't an excuse to misbehave, God's saying. You behave, I'll take care of you. So she does. She goes back. By the way, I love the way she describes that meeting. She says, quote, I have seen the God who sees me, who sees me. I love that line. It's one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture. God gave her promises about her kids' survival, saying, your children will be fiercely independent of the children that come from Sarah. And yes, they are. The children that came from Hagar are the Arabs. The children that came from Sarah are the Jews. And he promised Hagar, your children will not be slaves. They will not be under Israel. They will be in competition. They will be like a wild donkey, he says. Now, to us, that's not necessarily a compliment, but it was to them because you couldn't kill a donkey. He was going to survive anywhere. He says, you'll be all right. When her son is born, he is called Ishmael, which means God has heard me. What an amazing name. There'd be more trouble. There'd eventually, Ishmael grows up to a certain age, There's a problem between him and Sarah's son, Isaac. Once again, they're driven out into the desert. But once again, in Genesis chapter 21, 20 through 21, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, I'll walk with you. He chose to walk with Hagar. You know, everything Jesus said and did was important. Everything. When we fast forward and we see Jesus entering this world full of Leah's and Hagar's, We see him brought to the house of God, the temple. In the opening scene of Jesus' life, we see Anna. 
a messenger of God, right there with Simeon. We don't demote men. We just make sure we understand where we are together. We don't elevate the pretty and lower the, the less than. We don't elevate the rich and lower the poor. No. God did something when he came here. He spoke to Mary. He spoke to Anna. He showed us this is different. God, this God, respects and honors all men, all women, especially those that the world will never see. Even the world, even the women, rather, that God, I got to back up. I'm getting too excited trying to wrap this up. And, and now you're excited because it's going to wrap up. Um, <laughs> God entered this world and looked at the women that this world does not honor. Go through the Gospels and see how many interactions with women Jesus has. The number is staggering, especially when you realize the number that most inter interactions that most Jewish rabbis would have with women in their life is zero outside of their wife. Jesus' interactions are constant. And it's with the very women that other people don't want anything out with. Do you remember? Whenever the prostitute is washing Jesus' feet with her tears, the Pharisee is thinking, if he knew what kind of woman that is. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you see this woman? And he starts with that. Do you see her? Not a prostitute. Do you see her? We need to see the people they are not problems. They are people. God walked across the universe, stretched out his hand, and asked them to dance. I love our God. I love our God so much. It would be wise, go ahead and bring your, your group up if you would, Mark. It would be wise to do what Jesus said. Love as he loves. See who he sees. Act when he would act. This world is desperate for that. It really is. If you get onto anti-social media, it used to be social, it's not anymore. You will see calls for governments to do this or governments to do that and the anger between the two. I have no interest in calling the government to do anything because God said, you do it. You want the doors open to the poor? open your home. You want somebody healed? Go heal them. You want somebody fed? You feed them. We are now on the dance floor and God is saying, I want you to see who I see. And I want you to go to them and love them. Would you stand with me, please? It's very simple. Nothing weighty. Love who God loves. See who God would see. And do not see them as a problem or a statistic. See them, a person who God loves. And if God loves them, so should we. Amen, church?